Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Sorry about that. Uh, <clears throat> I literally had to fly in from outer space. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that have stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, it's all you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast though, as the title suggests, I'm here to talk of the stories of film and I talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories, battles with rating board stories that are in this particular episode, all the bits and bobs to, that go towards making the films that we know and sometimes love just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to choose for this podcast, well, they have a mainstream leaning to them, really. They're films I'm invested or interested in to some degree. I'm not interested in punching down. I'm not interested in snark. If anything, this podcast is just a celebration of the fact that it's really hard to make a film. And I just want to acknowledge, really, the people who managed to do that. Without further ado, then, I'm going to go into the first of the two films I'm going to talk about in this episode of the podcast. As always, I'm going to play you a clip and then we'll come to the story the other side of this. I need to get to Elysium. Whoever has this has the power to override their whole system. Hey, bring down the boom saw! This ain't gonna kill me. You can save everyone. We're gonna break into the most heavily guarded place in the universe. Oh, yeah. That then is a clip from 2013's Elysium, written and directed by Neil Blomkamp, uh, starring Matt Damon, Jodie Foster, Charlto Copley in the three lead roles of the movie. But whilst the film came out in 2013, well, the origins go back nearly a decade before. But for the purposes of this story, it was actually the year 2009 when Neil Blomkamp, after a career, uh, after huge success uh, with commercials and such like, announced himself as a big new talent in science fiction cinema. Um, with the backing of Peter Jackson, he made the film District 9. That was released in 2009. And not only did it turn into a significant box office hit around the world, it also attracted the interest of the Academy Awards being nominated for Best Picture. Not bad for a first feature film. The question facing Blomkamp then is, what on earth do you do next? And the answer, well, according to the August the 2nd, 2013 issue of Entertainment Weekly magazine, the answer to that question lay back in 2005. Back then, Blomkamp was an in-demand uh, director of commercials and he was making an ad for Nike in San Diego. The executive producer of the ad suggested that they spend the evening in Mexico for the night. They just slip over the border. So they hired a car and they went to tourist spot at Avenida Rolvusion. I believe that's how it's pronounced. Um, and they were walking down the street there when they were they were stopped by the police. The police, uh, a police officer took their Passports threw the pair into a police car and started driving Blomkamp and his executive producer out of the city. And it was the resourceful executive producer, who's not named in this story, uh, who dug into the petty cash stash that he'd brought along with him. And so for half an hour, as the story goes, he kept pushing money through the grill of the police car that separated uh, the police officer from his, uh, well, reluctant passengers in the back. Let's go about, let's go that way. Apparently it took around $900 before they were finally let out of the car, but they weren't taken back. So they faced a two-hour walk back 
to where they come from. And Blomkamp picks the story up in the magazine interview. He says, we're walking through these totally impoverished, insane areas with feral dogs and crying babies and people making fires. And on the horizon, I could see the floodlights from the US shining into Mexico. And there were multiple black hawks flying the perimeter. And it was like science fiction on Earth. And it was that social commentary, which runs through all of Blomkamp's films, that would spark the idea for a film set in 2154, where the rich live on a, a paradise satellite and the rest of us are stuck on Earth without basics like healthcare, resources or, or much hope, really. Far removed from where we are now. That said, when he completed District 9 and District 9 was successful, Hollywood was hugely interested in him and he was approached over an assortment of franchise films. The, the Robocop reboot that finally came around in 2014, uh, 2014 was one that was floated to him, apparently. Uh, Blomkamp would turn that one down, although for, he would for a while be attached to a film called Robocop Returns, which is currently in production, uh, well, pre-production or development at the point that this podcast is being uh, recorded, notably with Blomkamp no longer directing it. The bit where it clicked in his head as to uh, as to doing Elysium next, uh, well, as he told my old colleague, Ryan Lambie, the moment Elysium clicked was, I had this image from Sid Mead, uh, the legendary designer on films such as Blade Runner, um, from Sid Mead, on uh, the inside of one of those Stanford Tauruses, which he did for National Geographic. Blomkamp said, I was just sitting in my office. I'd had the image since I was 11, but in Canada, which is where he ultimately uh, spent some time growing up, I've had it for a while in my office. All of a sudden, I was like, Jesus, the rich could go to that. They could have physically taken the money and built that. And he started penning his screenplay. Now, this one was pack ultimately packaged for an expensive movie in quite an unusual way in that a company called Media Rights Capital came in to help bring it all together. Um, the film was going to cost a lot of money, but this was Blomkamp's chance. This was his moment. And the bill was going to be somewhere in the region of $100 million. And that's the package that Media rights capital was starting to put together now this in turn put demands on who do you cast in a film to get a studio interested in stumping part of the bill for a hundred million dollar sci-fi movie that's not based on an existing franchise Blomkamp's first idea was rap star Ninja who was a big fan of District 9 but I don't think I'm going out on a massive limb to suggest he wasn't best known for his movie work at this point uh, Ninja would in fact turn the role down and then Eminem uh, uh, or Marshall Mathers up to you was also sounded, sounded out about the lead role of Mac DaCosta in the film. Now, Eminem was interested in this one, apparently, but the condition of him being able to do Elysium was that the movie would have to shoot in Detroit. Blomkamp didn't want to shoot it in Detroit. And so then it was a, a, a move towards Hollywood, really, and justifying that sizable budget with the collateral of a movie star involved as well. So he had a meeting with Matt Damon and as Damon told Entertainment Weekly, uh, Blomkamp was insistent, I'm not doing anything Hollywood. And Damon just told Blomkamp he's from New York and that's where they met. And so Damon remembers, he said, quote, he, he ended up meeting in a diner and he was kind of giving me the one eye for the first 10 minutes or so. Blomkamp corroborates this as well. He said that he, he wants to he, he wanted to basically size up this leading actor. He didn't want someone to come in and bring Hollywood gloss to the film. So they, they had a chat over coffee in the end. And at this point, Blomkamp then had a graphic novel that he designed himself to explain the whole world of Elysium. And he, he got it designed in his head. He built it all out already. He just needed uh, he just needed help to bring it to life, as Damon explained. Actually, in the press notes of the film, he talked talks about this and he says it was ultimately an opportunity that he couldn't pass up. Jodie Foster would also sign up for a crucial role in the movie as well and as, as wary as Blomkamp was of movie stars he would ultimately get on with the pair well on set and they kind of fitted into his way of working and he I think fitted into theirs as well. But also in the cast was his old friend Shalto Copley who'd known Blomkamp since he was 14 and Copley's breakthrough role was also District 9, a huge film for the two old friends. There was some uh, caution on the part of Blomkamp that he's fairly open about the fact that he thought Charlotte Copley was uh, an avid ad-libber on set. And Blomkamp felt, uh, uh, from interviews he's given, a little bit of the pressure of now going on to a big set with big movie stars and that he did caution his friend that he might have to contain his ad-libbing just a little bit. 
However, I've jumped a little bit ahead because now we're at the start of 2011 and this is the point where Blomkamp was ready to do a deal to make the movie where the media rights capital company had got the package together, the stars were in, the script was in, the design was in. Blomkamp had his presentation and his storyboards that he could take around. Notably, also on board at this point was producer Simon Kimberg, most known for the X-Men films. Um, and at this point, the idea was take the project from movie studio to movie movie studio see which of them would take a meeting and see ultimately which of them would stump up to distribute and and co-fund the movie now elysium from the off was going to be an r-rated film as a consequence disney was the big uh the, the big studio that didn't take a meeting because it wasn't making r-rated films it still doesn't make r-rated films unless you count one or two of the fox arms that it's acquired but doesn't call fox anymore so the uh, as part and parcel of the pitch Blomkamp came in did a storyboard presentation and it was it was of interest to the studios but Sony who distributed District 9 quickly emerged as the favorite and there was a chat then being had um, over Universal coming in to co-fund a film of that size but this was a point where Sony was taking swings and was willing to take risks it was backing films like the other guys that wasn't cheap it was backing Roland Emmerich's 2012 that wasn't cheap and it was interested in Elysium and Blomkamp was happy at the idea of working with Sony again now it should be said I should acknowledge as well Media Rights Capital had actually done a deal with Blomkamp for two films that Elysium was going to be the first and then that it agreed that it would get Chappie his follow-up film made now Chappie wasn't part of the deal with that Sony inked with uh, with media rights capital for Elysium but the studio would indeed go on to distribute that movie as well I've got a lot of time for that film and I'll talk about that in a future podcast but with the deal with Sony now in place it was full steam ahead for Elysium but a science fiction film of this scale required an awful lot of preparatory work um, as, not not least for its actors that one of the uh, one of the drawings that Blomkamp had done um, in part of his design of the film well, he provided all of the actors with pictures of their characters and Damon would talk about Matt Damon would talk about this he said that nobody had ever done that for him before and Blomkamp handed Damon a picture of the character that he was going to play with his shirt off and so Damon went to his trainer and said make me look like that and that was that that was the prep work that Damon was having to do for the film the technical side of it which is which is brilliantly grubby throughout the film um, well again Blomkamp had strong ideas on the look of the droids and the look of the weapons that were going to be used in the film and he briefed the artists at Weta who were undertaking that work they he'd worked with them before Four on District 9. Joe Dunkley was the special makeup, costume and props uh, person on the film and one of the big challenges for him was the Hulk suit that, not that kind, that Matt Damon wears throughout the film and this took, he, he recalls, eight months of research and development and over 70 different revisions before they settled on a design for the suit that Damon was going to have to wear. Damon was dreading it um, from uh, one or two of the conversations he had around the time of the release that it looked really heavy it looked really cumbersome but actually it was so well designed that it was really lightweight and he realized a, a quote that he gave he could do a cartwheel in it that apparently weighed just 25 pounds and given the heft the, 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 just the heft of the look of the thing i think that's some achievement really one of the things with the droids that he was going to employ in the film is Blomkamp wanted to be able to direct his actors on set. And so the brief there was that they needed to be played by actors with some CG work done afterwards. And as a consequence, that's what informed the droid design to a degree that they used for the movie, that the design allowed them to cover up the actors on set. So Blomkamp would be able to interact and give them some direction. Then there was the design of the Elysium satellite itself and here Blomkamp wanted to root it into in a believable reality as the whole world of the film I think is thus he consulted with NASA to make sure that the, the satellite had the spin that, that basically does the he was asking questions like does the spin of the Taurus provide gravity for the space station um, and they concluded that the large body of water acts as a balancer to keep the high-tech world spinning and again this is extensively discussed in the press notes
notes of the film that are actually worth digging out. Press notes are generally quite dry, but I thought these were quite interesting. The film itself was then ready to shoot from the tw- well, the end of July 2011. And it was going to be a three-month physical shoot with obviously a lot of post-production CG work involved as well. But also, what Blomkamp needed Elysium to do was have locations that reflected the two different uh, ways of living in the world that he created. So he needed a, a very run-down planet Earth and then he needed something idyllic that would, uh, that would basically double in for Elysium. The job then for production designer Philip Evie was to find those places and he did, I mean he zeroed in on Mexico City to double as Los Angeles in 2154 and he then also chose Vancouver to double up for Elysium itself. Going back to Mexico City, though, what they actually chose as the key location for shooting was what was described in an interview with The Guardian as the world's second biggest garbage dump. And this was the landfill site, Bordo Poniente. On the first day where the cast and crew turned up there, it'd be fair to say that they're having some regrets. The stink of the place pretty much got everywhere and it was going to be the home for the production for at least a couple of weeks. Even before they were shooting there, the local unions were not particularly happy about this to the point where they demanded toxicology reports that it would be safe for the actors and for the crew to work on the landfill site. But for Blomkamp, and those reports presumably came back clean, but for Blomkamp it was vital to get across an imperfect world. There's a character in the film as well, played by William Fickner, who is the one who drifts between the, the two worlds of the film. And that in that is well brought with it a, a challenge just in terms of how he does so. And so to quote Cameron Waldbier, who was the special effects coordinator on the movie, another way that Fickner's character is shown as living in literally a different world from the residents of Earth is in his vehicle, which is represented by it was represented in them by a deal with Bugatti. And Waldbier says we approach Bugatti to see what they could come up with if they were designing a shuttle between Earth and Elysium. In two days, they turned around a bunch of illustrations. Neil picked one that he really liked. We 3D modelled it and then we made it out of foam and fibreglass to the point where the shuttle in there has the Bugatti badge as well. And that's a bit of product placement where both sides worked really hard to get it looking right in the movie. That said, the real struggle to get on film was the establishing shots of the Elysium satellite itself. And there's a really spectacular shot in there if you've seen the film. And again, it's described as it had to be a design, a torus that you could see in the sky when you're on Earth, even when you're far away. It has to be recognisable as a ring, like you're holding your wedding band up to the sky. And also it needed to work for complicated zoom shots that they were doing. And that was the real challenge that the visual effects team found themselves up against. There was a little bit, and I don't know if there's much more to this, but there was a little bit of just just a mild disconnect, I wondered, between what producer Simon Kingberg was pushing the film as and what Blumkamp was was selling it as, really. In the, in the press notes, Kingberg calls it an action movie, and he's very adamant this is an action movie. And the way Sony would ultimately sell Elysium was as an action movie. But King, Blumkamp, whilst acknowledging the action in the film, and he's not shy of action and enjoys action movies he's talked about that he was keen to play up the fact that this was a film that had something to say as well it was a serious stuff it was also a multicultural film as well which is why you get multiple language spoke languages spoken within the movie itself but it was a film very much with plenty to say and Blomkamp was very keen to make sure that was woven into the fabric of the movie I should note, too, that uh, one of the people he employed on the film was one of the people who was responsible for it starting in the first place. Uh, the great Sid Mead came in and did some design work on the film and lots and lots of things were, were going right on him. But Blomkamp would later admit that he innately knew with this one it wasn't quite working. We'll come to that in a minute. But filming wrapped up in September of 2011. And the plan originally had been to release the film at the end of 2012. Then it got pushed back to March of 2013. And Sony in the end moved it to to August 2013. And that was at a point where an August release wasn't, uh, wasn't a death nail or anything like that. 
but that was certainly moving it out of the highest profile parts of the summer season. It would be the year after that Guardians of the Galaxy would come out in a similar release slot and, and just transform expectations of what an August release could do. But then this was a big science fiction movie from a big movie studio. And again, I come back to the point that it wasn't clinging on to the coattails of a franchise or anything like that. This was a legitimate gamble. The film, by the time it had completed and wrapped up, cost in the end a little more than estimated at $115 million and it was released in the US on August the 9th in the end and the initial wave of reviews they were positive but there was a kind of a feeling that this is a good film but it's not as good as District 9 and that's something that Blomkamp would I think probably share as again I'm going to come to just in a second that said uh, Elysium proved to be a box office success it wasn't a juggernaut but again considering the kind of film it was and it was an R-rated movie too in the US to open with 29.8 million at the box office in a competitive weekend that was not shabby at all that in second place uh, the comedy where the millers opened with 26 million planes crikey remember that uh, opened with 22 million percy jackson sea of monsters opened with 14 million there were four films opening that weekend in the u.s uh, with uh, grossing over 10 million dollars also two guns there's an underrated movie that had held over from the year uh, the, the week before where i and it picked up another 11 million dollars it was a really really competitive weekend and elysium held its own it would go on in the u.s actually to do 93 million dollars and overseas it would add 193 million for a worldwide take of 286 and that was profitable in fact it, it's proved to be a good catalog seller on disc and download now presumably for sony well, on dvd and blu-ray but also now there's a 4k version of the film that's coming out on disc in 2021 so it's one that the studio is is happy to go back to for blomkamp he went straight on uh to making the film chappie with Sholto copley in south africa but also he would say in an interview with Oprox, I think he was the most candid about it, that he wasn't ultimately that keen on the film in comparison to others that he'd done. In that interview with Oprox, he's, he's uh, candid about too about the fact that he wasn't rushed into a film. There wasn't the pressure. He wanted to do this one. And he says, any frustration I feel with Elysium is with myself. I think I'm lucky, at least for this phase of my career, I'm lucky in the sense that I didn't feel a lot of pressures. I think other directors feel. I didn't have District 9 be successful and then have Elysium be not successful and then beat myself up over it because of how the audience perceives them. Um, he he's, he's the one there talking about Elysium not being successful although commercially it did decent business and the reviews were were pretty good i still think it's pretty well regarded as well I, i'm quite fond of the film but he would criticise himself over getting the world right, but the narrative wrong. He said, I feel like ultimately the story is not the right story. I still think the satirical idea of a ring filled with rich people hovering above the impoverished earth is an awesome idea. I love it so much. I almost want to go back and do it correctly, but I just think the script wasn't. I just didn't make a good enough film is ultimately what it is. He did change that original script. I didn't say this at the start, that for instance uh, Jodie Foster's role in the film was originally written for a, a male actor and he, he did little bits of uh, uh, tucks as he was developing the movie. But again, in, in hindsight, it's just not one he feels that he nailed. That's not to say that Hollywood agreed with him, though. Off the back of Elysium, not only did he go on to make Chappie, but he developed and was encouraged to develop his own sequel to Aliens that would have basically chopped Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, out of the canon, out of the timeline of the Alien franchise. That film got to the point where storyboards were being done, Sigourney Weaver was interested, and then Ridley Scott wanted to do Prometheus, and Fox chose between the two projects and went with Ridley Scott's movie, and Alien 5, the Blomkamp version, is now already a pretty infamous uh, sci-fi movie that never was. Blomkamp also was attached for a while to Robocop Returns, as I said before, which would have taken a similar approach to the Robocop franchise as well, cutting out the sequels that didn't quite cut it and doing a direct follow-up to the first film. That movie is still in development, just not with Blomkamp attached. Instead, he dropped out of that to make a smaller horror movie, smaller scale one, to get a film made. And he's also uh, overseen 
being and owns Oat Studios in South Africa, which is a company set up that's doing on, on a tight budget a load of really interesting visual experimental work and short films. And there's a hope there from Blomkamp and from me as well that Oats gets to do a full feature at some point in the future. What I also hope is Elysium isn't overlooked. And I do think if you've not had a look at it for a few years, I, I go back and have a mooch. I certainly did for this podcast bursting with ideas and who doesn't like films warts and all that have just got that are just fueled by so much imagination and so much to say which brings me to the halfway point of this latest film stories um i am an independent podcaster i say this every episode i'm sorry it's really boring but i'm an independent podcaster i'm i'm a nerdy person in a room without a big company behind me or anything like that the fact that i've got this far is down to you supporting me and thus if you can please do subscribe to this podcast and also if you can please leave ideally a hugely positive uh, review at your podcast host of choice that kind of thing is absolute gold dust to independent podcast producers where we don't have the marketing budget to go and take on everyone else or bring in huge celebrities not that i would if i could costner accepted of course likewise i also produce film stories magazines you can find those at store.filmstories.co.uk we just published a new issue of those and i'm working on another one as well but that's enough like me trying to sell you things i'm going to crack on with the second of the two films i'm talking about in this episode i think it's time for a bit of a sing-song i'll hand you over to this lot what are you guys doing here? We good? Yes! Yes! Off to the movies we shall go Where we learn everything that we know Cause the movies teach us what our parents don't have time to say And this movie's gonna make our lives complete Cause Terrence and Philip are sweet Super sweet! Thank God we live in the quiet little redneck podunk white trash You! That then is the end of the opening number of 1999 South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut, directed by Trey Parker, written by Parker, Matt Stone and Pam Brady. Uh, Parker and Stone lead the voice cast along with Mary Kay Bergman and Isaac Hayes in there as well. Now, the thing with this podcast is I, I try and make it, well, family friendly. Let's go with that. I, I try and go about 12A rating. This one's going to be trickier, but I'm going to give it a go. So... When South Park became a sensation on the small screen, it didn't take long for, and that was towards the end of the 1990s, it didn't take long for Hollywood to smell money. The show was notably cheap to make, but it was also constantly pushing every boundary it could find. And its creators, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, well, they'd been battling with Hollywood a little bit. They'd starred in Basketball for director David Zucker, a film that didn't take off, but I will come to at some point in the future. They'd also put together their own film, Orgasmo, where they'd had a number of problems with the Motion Picture Association of America over its rating, the MPAA. Again, I'm coming back to that shortly because, boy, did they uh, did they get, get some payback there. But it was producer Scott Rudin who ultimately would develop the project as a Paramount film because by the end of 1997, it was clear that there was momentum towards doing a South Park movie. The first series had done incredible ratings. and But the condition of doing a film from Stone and Parker was it always had to be an R-rated movie and this was confirmed by an interview with the pair in the New York Daily News from January 1998 where they said we would only do a movie if we could make it R-rated something like we did with The Spirit of Christmas now The Spirit of Christmas is important because that was the underground short film that ultimately led to the creation of South Park that had done the rounds in Hollywood and uh, as Stone and Parker added uh, the Beavis and Butthead movie was just a movie length version of the TV TV show we'd want something different than that now paramount was uh, keen to get involved with this one but it would be fair to say it was quite nervous about the film after all the the south park tv show was happy to push as many boundaries as he could and it was almost a certainty that the film would do so as well a tv guide in reporting the fact that the film was going ahead in april 1998 posed the question if wednesday's episode resolving the who's cartman's father cliffhanger could feature stuff like a hermaphrodite impregnating people at drunken barn dances and local townsfolk teaming up to cannibal down on his luck actor Eric Roberts how tasteless could the movie get 
There was reported pressure then from Paramount officials to keep the movie toned down, that Paramount would have preferred a PG-13 rated version of South Park. They were not going to get it. In fact, South Park creators Parker and Stone um, were, were quoted as saying they wanted to keep the R-rated spirit alive. He, Trey Parker would tell Entertainment Weekly in an article, after they showed us graphs of how much more money we'd make with a PG-13, we were like R or nothing. So, the, in early 1998, the pair signed a deal with Comedy Central. And part and parcel of that was it got them a slice of the merchandise uh, from South Park. It got them deals to make more episodes of the show. And also, the film was wrapped in there too. And they wanted to go back to that Spirit of Christmas short for the touch point um, over uh, as to how they wanted to approach the film. But also, their residual unhappiness with the MPAA over its treatment of the film Orgasmo was going to form part of the film. A Stone would say, we aren't trying to make a film that offends anybody except we're trying to offend the MPAA. Um, he says, we mention them in sentences like, you mean, the, you mean the MPAA is ineffective. We're spending tons of Paramount's money to do a big middle finger to the MPAA. Now, the deal was struck that, uh, as part and parcel of the way the rights were split on South Park. Warner Brothers would be distributing the film overseas. Paramount would have the US distribution and thus would be overseeing the production of the film nominally. But Parker and Stone would then uh, then set off to write the movie at the same time that they were making the latest series of the TV show. This was an incredibly intense schedule, but they went for it. They kind of figured if this was their moment, this is going to be the only chance they get to do a film. They may as well burn everything as they could. And they wanted a musical. So they wrote a musical and they wrote a musical that didn't hold back. And in fact, the, the pair would go on to do The Book of Mormon, one of the more successful musicals of recent recent times but their first uh, high profile taste of the genre was the South Park movie so by June of 1998 the script for the film was in a place where it could go forward in that summer it went to Paramount and at that stage the plan was to follow the animation style of the TV show and as a consequence it wouldn't take that long to turn the film around they would use 3D animation techniques uh, and computer work for the ultimate uh, for the ultimate final movie but they were following the path that they'd kind of set themselves thus far. So the making of the film was intense. I come back to that point that by the fact that they were juggling so many, so, so much at, at once, it was a, a period that they've said in subsequent interviews that they can barely recall. Production was underway on the film, and this is for an animated movie, uh, less than a year before it would appear in cinemas. It, it started in autumn of 1998, and at that stage, the plan was reportedly to release the film in February 1999 that then moved to April 1999 and eventually the release of the film would come uh, would be pushed to July of the same year where it would go toe to toe with Wild Wild West I'll be letting you know it got on there in a little bit in all, um, for six months really, alongside the TV show, the movie team was working in a different part of the production facility and was and was pushing their way through it. There was a lot of back and forth still to come, but they were able to, to realise the film relatively quickly. The title was announced as bigger, longer and uncut. There'd been some dispute over whether it was originally going to be called All Hell Breaks Loose. Um, but the, the name was sorted. The film was going was going forward. But the creatives were suffering. And Trey Parker talked in an interview with Playboy in the end. He said, the hardest time for me was a period from about April of last year until the movie came out. We were way overworked doing the series and the movie at the same time. But more important, it was the most stressed out that I've ever been because that's when all the critics started saying, South park is over the ratings are down it's over and this this is important to note that at the point after the first series of the show there was a decline for south park there was a backlash against parker and stone and so as again as parker would say in that interview they were saying oh they're making a movie but the show's over the movie's going to suck who cares and he said i'd like to say it didn't bother me f the press and everything but i can't it was hard because we knew this movie had better clocking rock let's go with that eh and so they ended up, uh, it goes back to the point, they ended up making, approaching the movie as if it was the last thing they'd do. That, that, that there was a feeling of, they're in their late 20s at this point, and there's a feeling of this might be on the downturn. 
Nonetheless, the film was completed to a point where it could be submitted to the Motion Picture Association of America. Sit down, chums. This one's a bit of a tale. Because right throughout production, it was clear that a battle was going to come to get an R rating for the movie. Now, this is important. If you're not familiar with the American rating system, the uh, an R rating means restricted and it means anyone under the age of 17 needs to go with an adult. The next rating up is NC-17. And what that means is anyone uh, under the age of 17 is just simply not allowed to go in. It's I mean, in the UK, we have the 18 certificate, which does pretty similar work. But different to here, the major theatrical, uh, the major cinema chains in the US will not show NC-17 movies. In the late 90s, video shops, remember those, would uh, the the big video shops would not stock NC-17 movies. As a consequence, it was crucial to Paramount that the very least this would get would be an R rating. And to give you an idea of just how willing they were to push the MPAA's buttons, there is a reported restriction that a film instantly gets uh, an NC-17 rating. And I couldn't corroborate this, but it doesn't sound a million miles off. An NC-17 rating, if it uses 400 swear words and thus South Park bigger, longer and uncut, uses 300 but the full extent of the battle with uh, between Parker Stone and the Motion Picture Association of America uh, was laid a little bit bare, really, in another Entertainment Weekly article, which I've got here. Here's the magazine from its July the 9th, 1999 issue. And Stone told Entertainment Weekly that after a while, we tried to get anything we could past the MPAA. And that really hissed off Paramount. Again, I'm just making the language a little bit more family friendly because I just it's funnier that way it got to a point where and i've not read this but i've read reports of it an 11 page memo was produced by producer scott rudin who was really fighting hard for parker and stone to get what they wanted but he produced an 11 page memo following negotiations between the motion picture association of america and an executive at paramount because the mpaa in the end screened the film i've seen it written as six or seven times and on each occasion it came back with an nc-17 rating apart from the last one but the cuts detailed in the 11 page memo go quite forensic into into some of the stuff they had to do so uh, how do i put this if you say in in certain contexts up the bottom that takes you into nc-17 rating but calling a religious figure the biggest bitch of them all, well, they're quite happy with that as long as they're not involved in any sexual practice and that gets you an R. Now, if someone, if a goalkeeper comes for a ball and punches it in a football match, it could be said that they're fisting the ball away. As a, however, if you just say that, that could potentially in some context get you an R rating. However, further, however, if you then explain one particular context that's not related to a goalkeeper coming for a cross and punching it away um, and you explain that other context in detail, that instantly gets you an NC-17. That's what it says in this in this memo. There was a further discussion in the memo. Let's just say this one involved a, a Venn diagram featuring ping pong balls um, and a female orifice. I think there's no cleaner way to say that. And so, as Paramount explained in the in the memo, the ping pong balls are supposed to look like they're coming from her bits and pieces, but she stands up and, and you know it's now she's holding a paddle. And, and apparently the rep from the MPAA said, that helps. All oh, right, OK, so she's just playing table tennis then. Now, Matt Stone uh, talked about this a bit more uh, when a copy of the memo popped up. Um, it, a, a different memo that he'd sent to the ratings board popped up online in 2006. And I'll read you as much of this as I can get away with. And he says, here is our new cut. So this is this is Stone writing to the ratings board. Here is our new cut of the South Park movie to submit to the MPAA. Uh, sorry, this is uh, Stone writing to Paramount, of course. I wanted to tell you exactly what notes we did and did not address. 
So, one, we left in both the uh, the aforementioned goalkeeper punching and uh, there's no way around this, rim job references in the councillor's office scene. We did cut the word hole from asshole as per our conversation. Number two, we've cut cut out the idea um, a significant religious figure has, um, has, has entertained me in the rear end so many times. That's gone. Um, he, he explained, number three, although it's not animated yet, we put a new storyboard in for clarification in the scene with Saddam Hussein's penis. The intent now is you never see his real one. He is in fact using dildos both times. If you get the impression from this that there were hostilities between Paramount and the filmmakers then you get a bonus point because we're coming to that in a second. So there's the shot in the film where a ping pong ball uh, comes out of, well, uh, Winona Ryder. There's no way of not saying it. And and the clarification is in the memo that there is a paddle uh, that, that is being used in that sequence now. Um, we took out the only reference to um, something sucking backside in the film. It was in the councillor's office and we took it out. And number six, we left in the scenes with Cartman's mum and the horse. As per our conversation, this is one joke we really want to fight for. And it just signs it off beautifully we call with any questions matt going back to the 11 page document then that w- that did go to the mpaa producer scott rudin described that document as hilarious and in fact in uh, in the entertainment weekly article i was talking about before matt stone said hands down the mpaa made our movie much more graphic and subversive we should send a thank you letter to jack valenti our movie's funnier because of him now jack valenti was the infamous uh, president and ceo of the motion picture association of america and he's not he was not a happy man he is also quoted in the same entertainment weekly article and he says of the two filmmakers those two hairballs don't know what they're talking about they're trashing us to get attention for their film and guess what they've brilliantly succeeded and in relation to the back and forth that happened between paramount and the mpaa he said these negotiations go on all the time a filmmaker has a right to know why he got a rating and he's got a right to say i'm going to adjust my film to get a less severe rating now this goes to something that parkinstone had a real problem with because when they made orgasmo and submitted it to the mpaa and asked for clarification as to why so they could cut it and get an r rating they were just given vague uh, sexual content and that was it what they discovered when they weren't independent filmmakers and were now part of a studio is they got a detailed breakdown of what they needed to cut and they were disgusted by this that independent filmmakers were in their view treated so poorly by the MPAA and it, but, but when you're a big studio and part of the Hollywood ecosystem oh well that's fine you get a full explanation this did not go down particularly well in fact it was getting to the point where uh, apparently as the different cuts went back from Stone and Parker to the ratings board they were putting bits and bobs in just to get on their goat as well and this all went backwards and forwards backwards and forwards backwards and forwards uh, right up until two weeks before the film's release when it still was stuck with this NC-17 rating and that's when Parker and Stone unleashed producer Scott Rudin. Now Rudin is a producer and there's several accounts of this who said to have quite a a, a volcanic approach from time to time again let's go with that as a consequence the filmmakers spoke to him Uh, Rudin unleashed his uh, his passionate belief that the film should be an R rating let's go with that to executives at Paramount and Rudin had delivered so many hits for the studio he had real cachet with them as well Paramount thus unleashed on the MPAA the MPAA ultimately relented and gave South Park its R rating Jack Valenti would ultimately say it was his one his biggest regret in office that he didn't give the film an NC-17 and in the aftermath of South Park Bigger, Longer and Uncut's release, the MPAA will begin to add explanations of its decisions as part of its ratings. While the battle was going on, that battle was going on, there was another battle going on at the same time between the filmmakers and Paramount Pictures. To say there was a disconnect, that would not be an understatement. That Paramount put together an original trailer, for the, the original trailer for the film, that Trey Parker and Matt Stone 
absolutely hated to the point where when they were sent it, they smashed the videotape up and, uh, and, and told the production team, basically, you can't have it. This one's not working. Because what was also going on in, in the background of all of this is Stone and Parker knew really that they, they needed a hit film or they, they certainly wanted a hit film. Um, it came at the point where the ratings for the show were going down. But also the two movies that they made just hadn't broken through and they wanted this one to they wanted this one to hit and they went backwards and forwards backwards and forwards with with the studio over how to promote the film over how to push the film and well it, it's just that the relationship took an absolute battering in fact stone was quite sanguine about this in that entertainment weekly article he says we hate paramount people are telling us we're torching our relationship with them the fact is if the movie does well we'll be their best friends if it doesn't they'll hate us anyway it got to the point with the promotion of the film where where parker and stone were clear how they wanted to push the movie and it, matt stone would write a memo that he sent to lots of departments of uh, within paramount pictures entitled a formula for success and it said cooperation plus you doing nothing equals success and that's what they faxed to everyone as stone would say we were humongous dicks about it just humongous they threatened to sue us and so this was in playboy interview and and parker explained that the reason they they were threatened with litigation was they took a, a quote they took the songs from the movie and did a video and because it was for mtv they cut all the r-rated parts out and edited it into this horrible little medley all the funny it was gone and you watched it and you're like what the fuck is this but it was being made in our studio so we just took away the tape and Stone said their people worked 24 hours a day all weekend to get it to MTV on Monday so MTV could put it on the air on Wednesday. So I put the tape in the trunk of my car and went home. This did not go down very well at all. However, crucially, the film did. That when it came time for the release, well, the, the critics were really warm on it. And this $21 million movie was now being released in July of 1999, high season, in the summer of Star Wars as well. I've talked about that a few times on the podcast. And the critical response was really strong. Now, given the content of the movie, there were some significant detractors of it as well. There were people who were less won over by just how satirical and rude and boundary pushing the whole thing was. But in terms of a satire of the movie business, it was pretty much on the money and also, the musical side of it was hugely acclaimed as well. The film would um, enter the Guinness Book of World Records in 2001 as the film to have the most profanity ever used in an animated film. It was counted up as, t as 399 instances. And when it landed at the box office on July the 2nd, 1999, South Park Bigger, Longer and Uncut opened with, I mean, $11 million at the box office. So it opened in fourth place on that weekend. End, but it was up against some hefty stuff. Wild Wild West, which I've covered before on this podcast, opened in the top slot. Adam Sandler was cleaning up with Big Daddy in second place. Disney's Tarzan was in third. The General's Daughter, um, that was in fifth. Star Wars Episode One was still hanging around after two months in sixth place, uh, as well as the Austin Powers sequel, that was in there. Spike Lee's Summer of Sam opened to five, six million that weekend as well. Um, and Notting Hill was, uh, was around as well, which I'm sure Parker and Stone loved that film. The movie would go on to gross, well, <laughs> around the world by the time it was done, $83 million. So $52 million in the US, $31 million overseas. And it would make a further killing on DVD and on, uh, more recently on Blu-ray and also on video. And it, would, I mean, it was just a big success. So much so that it also interested the Oscars that the, the song Blame Canada was nominated for Best Song at the Academy Awards. So not only have they got a box office hit at the third attempt, they'd also got a film that had an Oscar nomination for with it as well. Uh, Robin Williams turned up to sing the song at the ceremony that year and Parker and Stone turned up for the Oscars wearing outfits based on those previously worn by Gwyneth Paltrow and Jennifer Lopez. Now, the, Phil, the, the song would lose the Academy Award to Phil Collins's song from Tarzan. And that, of course, would provide more material for the TV show because that's how quickly they could turn stuff around. It's notable that there's Phantom Menace gags in South Park. That's how close to the wire they were able to get with the movie. Phantom Menace was what released, what, seven weeks before their film was. And they were still able just to get a little jab in. 
Going back to that Playboy interview, they said that previously sure they'd been thrown out of Hollywood after making the movie Parker and uh, Parker and Stone were then were instead reinvigorated by the reception for the film. And the article explains that they took a short break, threw themselves back into start South Park episodes, hoping to make the next season their best yet. And after years of dividing their time between television movies and music, um, they they then focused uh, more primarily on the television show. In terms of what happened next, well, their prediction that they would work with Paramount again if the film was a success, that came true. I'm coming in a future podcast to the majesty of Team America World Police, which was an even more demanding production than this one. But more recently as well, Warner Brothers found itself in a position with Christopher Nolan's Interstellar where it wanted a piece of that of that pie. Now, Interstellar was set up as a project at Paramount Pictures and thus Paramount had uh, had ownership of that film yet Warner's wanted to be the Christopher Nolan studio so they did a deal with Paramount and what it meant was that the rights to South Park to future South Park films I think also Friday the 13th was wrapped in as well would revert to Paramount in exchange for Warner Brothers having basically half ownership of Christopher Nolan's Interstellar and that was the deal that was struck and South Park was a trading card in that particular transaction the movie continues to endure and Parker and Stone have gone on to uh, musical success with the aforementioned The Book of Mormon. And there continues to be talk of them returning to the big screen for a Book of Mormon movie, although that chatter seems to have died out just over the last year. But then pretty much most production chatter appears to have died out over the last year, given the circumstances that we're living through. As it stands, the pair have put two big uh, Paramount Pictures musicals on the screen, both of them. I suggest well well worth checking out I think South Park still st- bigger longer uncut still stands up as a, as a terrific satire I like the film an awful lot but crikey don't go into that one expecting uh, expecting a nice PG-13 film as Paramount originally envisaged although notably I'll leave you with this bit of trivia um, it was it was actually given a 15 certificate in the UK and the story goes that, um, that, that the filmmakers by putting the C word in thought they were guaranteed an 18 but but turned out the British Board of Film Classification was slightly more relaxed about that. Which brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. Thank you, as always, for listening. You can find more from me waffling away on Twitter at Simon Brew. On the, the entire Film Stories project is on Twitter at Film Stories Pod. You can buy our latest print magazine, store.filmstories.co.uk. The filmstories.co.uk website, meanwhile, is where you'll find every weekday loads of news stories, loads of features. They're all waiting for you there. We're on YouTube at youtube.com slash filmstories. And you'll find us hiding away on Facebook as well facebook.com slash film stories online most important thing though is particularly in these in these times you all stay safe and well um, thank you for your time thank you for your eardrums and i'll be back soon with another bunch of film stories bye bye Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.